hi, welcome to Beyond the Grave. This is a podcast that explores cemeteries and the like to tell the stories of those who lie within or those who've been commemorated in some way. Whether a final resting place is in a graveyard, the bottom of the ocean, or the only marker to prove an existence is a simple memorial, there's always a story behind it and from beyond the grave. I'm your host, Jamie Johnson. I'm not an expert on the subjects we will discuss. I simply have an interest in them. I'll present a discussion topic, a final resting place, and a story or two of our dearly departed. Since we will be discussing death and topics surrounding it, some listener discretion is advised. The purpose of this podcast is to educate, so if you find the subject matter offensive or morbid, then this is not the podcast for you. There may be, may also be some coarse language. My co-host for this episode is Greg, again, for episode two. Welcome, Greg. Hello. Uh, for those who are just tuning into this episode, Greg was my co-host for very first episode in which we discussed uh, rules and etiquette surrounding visiting cemeteries as well as the St. Patrick's Cemetery located here in Lethbridge, Alberta, where we are both from. Greg is also my brother. So today we're going to start off with, um, in the previous episode, we talked about St. Patrick's Cemetery. There were three sections to the cemetery. There was the Chinese section, the Protestant section, and the Catholic section. So today I'm going to discuss or tell you the stories of our dearly departed from each section. We're going to start with the Chinese section. And here's a little fun fact. This portion of the cemetery was built south of the Galt Number no. 3 mine. And it was customary to say that a Chinese person who passed away went to Number no. 3 as they never used the phrase they died. Um, so the first dearly departed we're going to share a story on is Wei Liang. <clears throat> Wei Liang was born in China, Hong Kong, in 1879. He emigrated to Vancouver in 1921, when he was 42, and eventually settled in Lethbridge in 1926. Two years later, in 1928, he opened the Bo Wan Tong in Lethbridge's Chinatown. Okay. Uh, the name translates to Good Health Store, and served as an apothecary. Chinese workers were sent to Canada in the late 1800s to help build the railroad, Many of the workers would go to Chinatown after work to socialize. Chinatown was established in 1901, and by 1912, there were about 100 people living there. Strict racist laws prevented a lot of workers from bringing their families with them to Canada. So while Chinatown bustled in the 1930s, the population diminished to about 60 by the 1940s. Boantong became a gathering place for many of the working men for tea and gambling. A lot of them boarded in one of the many rooms in the upstairs quarters of the building. One source says, It was a point of pride among the Chinese in Lethbridge that no Chinese person had to rely on quote-unquote relief, welfare, during the Great Depression, and gambling was one manner in which the Chinese community in Lethbridge provided support to its own members. Gambling was so popular here, it is said that when King Edward was still just a Prince of Wales, he visited Boantong for some fantan when he was here staying at his ranch. Wei Liang was also a Freemason who were considered communists in China. Since the nationals didn't like the communists and Lethbridge Chinese population was 80% nationalist, many of the patrons of Boantong would have their goods delivered so they wouldn't be seen going into a communist-owned establishment. Wei Liang went to number three in 1967 at the age of 88. Thank you. So me and mom used to go there a lot in the 80s. This is when Albert ran the store. And 
White rabbit candy. That, yes. Yeah. That's okay. what I was going to say. Yeah. We always had her white rabbit candy. Yeah. Is that, do you remember? That's ringing a bell. Yeah. yeah. You get the white rabbit candy there. I don't remember you being there, but I remember, like, I, I remember the visits there all the time. And then when I was a teenager, I'd go there when I thought I was a hippie, I would go there and get like all my incense and, okay. and stuff. And those little cups that have, like when you put a candle in it and the little tea light. Yeah, you put a little tea light in it. They're like for, for green tea or something. And then when you light the candle, all those little white. Oh, I see. You don't see them until the candle's lit. Right, And right. then, yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> um, and I have a beaded doorway, a vintage one from the 60s. So is it shut down now? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's um, It was condemned uh, in 2013 for structural issues. So right. the basement needs work, um, foundation needs work, some supporting walls need work. Um, because it's privately owned, the city can't step in and give funds to help um, okay. restore it. So Albert has been basically evicted. He lives in the castle apartments for now until he can earn enough money to fix the problems and move back home because that's where he lived. I that's see. where he was born. Um, there's a Save Chinatown initiative that's there to help kind of try and raise some funds but I don't know I haven't really heard much about it in the last couple of years so I don't know if they've sort of really sort of reestablished the building bring it up to code bring renovate. it up to code renovate they want to do like a little museum they want to be able to rent the space out upstairs for meeting rooms and stuff hmm. um, but they just they don't have enough money and um, he's hoping to move back in and live there yeah I see yeah yeah that was his home so um, we'll talk about his mom next. So, uh, Florence Holyong was born in 1904 in China and emigrated from Hong Kong in 1921, just before the Chinese Immigration Act was set in place. Uh, so this is one of those restrictive racist laws that we talked about just a second ago. Um, basically, they made it really tough for Chinese immigrants to come into Canada. So she got here before all of that red tape was up. So she was the fourth wife to Wei. She was the only one who moved to Canada from China. She would often fill in as the fourth Mahjong player at one of the gambling tables in the store. Florence and Wei had 13 children together. Many, if not all, were born in the basement of Boantong. Um, I couldn't find anything to support this. I just know that Albert was born there um, in 1941. Uh, she cooked many traditional Chinese dishes for Wei and her family, such as Chinese melon soup, dried oysters, rice, salted fish, and any vegetables flavored with oyster or soy sauce. However, her son Albert preferred burgers and steak. Florence also spent time working in the restaurant next door. That was the new China chop suey. The Leongs would cook for up to 200 people for each Chinese New Year's Day. She was an expert in classic literature and music, playing a variety of musical instruments like the moon harp, violin, and the Chinese banjo. She was even a drummer for the Chinese Freemasons Lion's Dance. She was nicknamed Si Hao Pu, which means boss lady. When Wei was ill, she would take over the store's duties, and she ran the store after his... <clears throat> a year after his passing, she suffered a stroke, but continued to live at the store. Her son Albert ran the store for many years until the building was condemned in 2013. We just talked about that. Um, in 2004, a subdivision in Lethbridge, Legacy Ridge, was created to honor some of the badass women who made contributions to the community 
and Florence Ho-Leong has a crescent named for her there. She went to number three in 1983 at the age of 79, though one source said she was 77. It's really weird. When you look these things up, the dates are always conflicting. Like you'll mm. see a headstone and it'll have the dates there, but you'll go to Ancestry.com or wherever and you'll have a totally different date. So I don't know what's up with that. They just don't have like... Most consistent record keep. Either that or like... I don't know. Did they not bury her for two years? <laughs> you know, like, is right. there something weird there? I don't know. Maybe they didn't register her file a certain way until after the fact. Oh, could be because like you know, it's a clerical thing. Grandma's birthday is right. actually the sixteenth of August, but her birth certificate says the eighteenth because her dad didn't get to the place oh, or whatever. See. Yeah. All right, so next we'll move into the Protestant section. <clears throat> and we have uh, here Harry Camus Taylor. Camus? Camus. K-A-M-O-O-S-E. Like a moose with a ka oh. in front of it. His headstone reads, Earth has one pure spirit less. Heaven, one inmate more. <laughs> He was born in 1824 on the Isle of Wight off the south coast of England. In 1848, he moved to California to follow the gold rush with a guy called John Glenn. After a few years of not finding gold, they moved north to British Columbia for other prospects. They traded for a bit, and then in 1863, they moved into the Northwest Territories. During their travels, they were out of food for four days when they reached Fort Edmonton. The policy of the company HP BC or Hudson's Bay Company at the time was to keep white men out of the country so they weren't able to come buy food easily. Finally, they were sold a bag of potatoes for $20, which equates to $389.08 today Whoa. for a bag of potatoes. A bag of spuds. Yeah, you could do a whole lot with potatoes, though. Um, some Catholic mission sisters took pity on them and gave them some butter and tea. Then they moved south. Glenn settling in Fish Creek until his death, Taylor settling in southern Alberta. He continued trading until October 17th of 1874, when the Northwest Mounted Police confiscated his two four-horse teams, 60 other horses, and all of his buffalo robes and trading goods, and fined him $500, which equates to $10,750.88 today. This earned him the distinction of being the first traitor arrested by the Northwest Mounted Police. Now, when you say traitor, what do you think he's trading? Fur. I thought so, too. Do you know what he was actually doing? Potatoes? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but um, whiskey. Okay, so the whiskey trade was basically, <clears throat> like, it was awful. So the Europeans came along and they were like, hey, we want your fur and shit. We have this and that to trade, but we also have this. And they basically gave them alcohol. Right. And it was a mix that they had concocted that was so potent and so addictive to the First Nations people that they just they couldn't get enough of it. They would get them drunk right before trades happened so that right. they couldn't make good decisions and basically just ended up stealing all of their shit getting them addicted to alcohol so that they would do anything for it and just end up giving all of their belongings mm. away for whiskey. So it was an exploitative practice. Exactly. Yeah. 
So it's basically just part of like uh, Canada's history that gets kind of swept under the rug, like the residential schools. and Not one mention of whiskey until you dig a little bit deeper. Right. Um, the one website that I got this information from was by Hammerson Peters. The term firewater comes. Yes, from? yeah, yeah. That's actually what I was just gonna say. So yeah. that that's what they called it. Yeah. So then, and also another uh, source I looked into says that the the mounted police they would confiscate the furs and stuff for themselves, um, instead of like in lieu of fines. So they'd said what they might have done with this guy. I said, okay, here's a five hundred dollar fine. Instead of you having to pay that, we're just gonna take all of your your buffalo robes and we're just gonna make fancy police coats for ourselves out of them these coats after that he was like fuck this i'm going to calgary i'm gonna build a trading post and hotel here so he did that and he was there till 1881 um so it was also kind of hard to find the meaning for the word camus but one source says it could mean wife stealer and that he earned the nickname after he was refused an offer to buy a first nations woman he fell in love with and he just ran off with her anyway after his time in Calgary, he moved to Old Fort McLeod, and he built the McLeod Hotel. He ran that hotel until 1884. When the new Fort McLeod site was established, he built the present McLeod Hotel and ran it until 1892. He then became a rancher about three miles from town, and a year before his passing, he moved to Lethbridge to live with his son. He married in 1875 and had three children. His wife died in 1885. He remarried the following year. He had three children with his second wife. Of his six children, five were still living at the time of his passing. His daughter Mary was married to Mike Mountain Horse, who was named after the school. On... You mean the school is named after her? <laughs> no. My, Mike Mountain Horse, who was... Named for the school? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> that school on the west side called Mike Mountain that was, that was built in like hundreds of years after yeah. his death. Yeah. <laughs> he was he's, named, he's named after, after that, that school. school. Right. Yeah. On March 23rd, 1901, Taylor was at his son's wholesale liquor store visiting with friends. He got up from the chair he was in, staggered around a bit, and started to vomit. His son and friends put him in a bed at the back of the store and called a doctor to come and look at him. When the doctor arrived, he administered a dose of morphine for his headache, and soon after, he fell asleep. A few hours later, when his son tried to wake him up, he found he was dead. His obituary says he was widely known and respected for being extremely generous and kind-natured. It also says he, quote, was a man of robust health with a great force of character and a fund of anecdotes connected with the past of Alberta that probably no other man possesses, end quote. So this guy was known for having some pretty funny rules posted at his hotel. There's, I think it's the Glenbow Museum in Calgary that's got a list of them. And I think there's some in Fort McLeod as well. But we can just go through um, some of these here. So there's 16. Um, okay, so some of the rules that he had in posted in his hotel. Um, Rule number one, guests are forbidden to strike matches or spit on the ceiling or to sleep in bed with their spiked boots and spurs on. Meals served in rooms will not be guaranteed in any way. Our waiters are hungry and are not above temptation. What do they mean by spit on the ceiling? Like 
spit up at the ceiling and hope that it hits the ceiling. Strike matches or spit on the ceiling. Well, wouldn't it just fall down on your face? You would think. Um, okay, number two. Every known liquid except for water is for sale at the bar. Uh, number three. Crap, chuck luck, stud horse poker, and blackjack games are run by the management. Indians charged double rates, special rates, to gospel grinders and the gambling profesh. Which is, I think, like Valley Girl slang back then for professionals. Maybe. Like, <laughs> yeah. No kicking regarding the quality or quantity of meals allowed. Those who do not like the preventer will get out or be put out. Assaults on the cook are strictly prohibited. Quarrelsome persons, also those who shoot off without provocation guns, or other explosive weapons, and all boarders who get killed will not be allowed to remain in the house. All guests are requested to rise at 6 a.m. The sheets are needed for tablecloths. <laughs> I'm assuming these are all gags. I don't know. That's the thing. Like it's The one book that I was reading about this made it sound like this was totally serious. Uh, um, other sources are saying that this guy was like, like I, a funny... I'm assuming that all of it was tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. yeah. I would think so. No checks cashed for anybody. Payments must be made in cash, gold, or blue chips. The bar in the annex will be open day and night. All drinks 50 cents each. Night drinks a dollar each. Only regularly reg or regularly registered guests will be allowed the special privilege of sleeping on the barroom floor. Yeah, this is tongue-in-cheek. No mixed drinks will be served except in the case of death in the family. Mm -hmm. Valuables will not be locked in the hotel safe. The hotel has no such ornament. Baths furnished free down at the river, but bathers must provide their own soap and towels. To attract the attention of waiters or bellboys, shoot a hole through the door panel. Two shots for ice water, three for a deck of cards, and so on. No tips must be given to any waiters. Leave them with the proprietor, and he will distribute them if it's considered necessary. Dogs are not allowed in the bunks, but may sleep underneath. Insect powder for sale at the bar. A deposit must be made before towels, soap, or candles can be carried to the rooms. When the boarders are leaving, a rebate will be made on all candles or parts of candles not burned or eaten. Where the guests find themselves or their baggage thrown over the fence, they may consider that they have received notice to quit. So aside from these cuckoo rules, he had a silhouette of the back of a man's head with a gun pointed at it with a warning of no jawbone, which means he would not accept credit. Um, so no jawbone is like another old timey kind of slang term for like no, no schmoozing to try and get what you want. No sweet talking to, hey, I'll, if you give me this one for free, I'll... Clean Later spit on. off your ceiling or whatever. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, okay, so lastly, um, we have the Catholic section. And this is the story of Richard Vadney. Born June 11th, 1860, according to one site. Um, his gravestone says 1861. Uh, his parents were Boniface Antoine Vadnais and Euphemie Emile Fontaine in St. Jean-Baptiste, Rueville, Quebec. He was known to others as Dick. He lived on his ranch near Cartston with his wife, whose name is reported a couple of different ways. One site says her name was Eloise. 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 
um, or Eleanor. Um, there's, yeah, who knows what her real name is. Um, Bissat was her maiden name. Their two children, Florence and William. His sister-in-law, or her sister, Mrs. Dagnault, and her nine children. His brother-in-law, Theodore Bissett, so his wife's brother, and his family of nine children. So there's lots of people there. So there was trouble brewing either in the marriage or in the household because of how many people were living there. Um, reports of Dick seeing legal counsel in Lethbridge in August of 1908. And the night he returned home, there was an affray. Dick was shot in the shoulder and in the wrist slash forearm. His wife and brother-in-law were taken into custody and charged with discharging firearms and intent to kill. So apparently tensions rose. Dick was drunk. He threatened to kill his wife and her brother. A fight ensued and a gun went off. Um, September 8th, 1908. So this is, she gets arrested. So does he. They get sent to Calgary. Um, a few days later, the Lethbridge Herald's classified section reported an ad placed by Dick stating... Caution, my wife, Eleanor Vadnais, having left my bed and board, all persons are cautioned against giving her any credit on my account as I will not be responsible for any incurred. So I'm not sure what happened there. She was in jail, so I can't see how she'd be out spending his money. But he, like, he puts an ad in the classifieds. Like, Letting everybody know. Hey, my wife left me. Don't give her anything. <laughs> Should she ask, I'm not responsible for these charges. Um, both accused pleaded not guilty. Translators were brought in for their trials, neither understood English. And in November of 1908, both um, Eleanor and her brother were found not guilty. In February 1909, so a few months later, Dick was shot in the head twice. Uh, he survived for three weeks. I know that's weird. It's like, Whoa. yeah, it's, it, he gets shot survives his wife's not guilty and then he gets shot again in the head twice by whom oh here's the mystery uh we don't know he survived for three weeks succumbed to his injuries on february 20th his wife was arrested again but just before he died like he kept saying it was her and then right before he died he said no it wasn't her she's not guilty and he asked that she be brought back from the calgary barracks so that they could be reconciled before he died an inquest found that bullets were fired from a gun in the hands of some person or persons unknown to us. The murder was never solved, but there were other reports of potential conflicts that might have contributed to his death. His house was so close to the Montana border, um, he was able to sell liquor kind of easily across the border. American government wasn't happy about that, and some said that it wasn't safe for him to cross the border. So to complicate it even further, a U.S. government cartridge was found on his property. So he could have been involved in some illegal alcohol smuggling and maybe he was killed by yeah. American government people or maybe it was his wife or his brother after all or brother-in-law. Who knows? Wow. So, yeah, that's the story of Richard Badney's. And, yeah, that's... That's it. That's all she wrote. So thank you so much for tuning in to Beyond the Grave. Please feel free to support the show by telling a friend, giving us a review, or just subscribing so you don't miss any future episodes. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Links will be in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or have your own story you'd like to share, you can email me at beyondthegravepodcast at gmail.com. 
Thank you to today's host, Greg, my brother. Appreciate having you on the show. Thanks for... Thank you for having me. Yes, my pleasure. Um, okay, we're done. We're done. Okay.